You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. We're now at the latter part of February, and I'm excited to say that my wife and I will be leaving for Australia in just a little bit. We're going to be at the Manifest Breakthrough Conference. You can find the banner at our webpage, bridemovement.com or brideministriesinternational.com, which we are switching over to. Both right now are pointing to the same website. But at that place, you, you'll see on the front page banner that there, there is a, um, a, a banner for that conference. You can click it. If you happen to be in Australia or the Adelaide area and find this podcast and say, you know, I'd like to see Daniel in person. Daniel and his wife. This is going to be an amazing time. I am telling you, God's hand is on this, without question. And there's going to be some radical things that transact. And I'm just so looking forward to being part of that. It's going to be uh, Thursday through Saturday next week, February 28th through March 2nd. And so, with that said, a special shout out to Field of Dreams and to Gateway Church in Adelaide who have come together to uh, host my wife and I. We are so grateful to you. Now, I also want to reiterate something that I've been saying from the beginning of the year. This is a year that's designed to be an end of delay. Many of you have had delay that has hit areas of your life, maybe for years or decades in some cases. This year is anointed to be the year where that glass ceiling breaks. I want to encourage you, this is a time to sow into that. God has challenged my wife and I to sow like we've never sown before. And like my wife says, sow in the time of rain. Why? Because your seeds are going to get fertilized much faster and you will see faster growth. Um if you feel led to support our ministry, which I hope you do, especially if you've been feeding off of this platform for some time, just go to bridemovement.com. We have a donate page. It's really easy. We even accept cryptocurrency, believe it or not. And some of you have donated to us in cryptocurrency. It's you know, just a different way of showing the Lord how grateful you are for what he's given you. And also for unlocking things that will bless your life. The Bible says, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Will God cause men to give into your bosom? It says, he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. And and I want to say for all of our donors and supporters in 2018, you are so greatly valued and appreciated. We sent off most of our donor appreciation gifts for our tier one and tier two givers this week. Uh, so that is out. Those are the Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall earbuds with our new branded logo on there. It's really, really cool. And for our tier one donors, those that gave us over $1,000 in the year of 2018, you are also getting a free copy of Prayers to Shake Heaven and Earth and a free copy of Noah's Ark in the End of Days. Now, it, we sent off address verification for most of our people that we were unsure, you know, are you still living at the address we have on file? Because we don't want to be dealing with returns and, and undeliverable packages. So if you have not responded to that, you may have a delay on your donor appreciation gift. So I just want to put that out there. Now, 
as my wife and I will be traveling, nothing will be getting shipped from this ministry for the next two weeks. So if you buy a book on our website, you'll just have to be patient and wait for us to get back. And we'll put a little note on the website so that everyone going there knows, like, yep, nothing shipping for two weeks. So I think that's all I have for you this week. Thank you for your support and your continued support. You are helping us to build a platform that is really shifting things. I mean, truly. And and, and the farther we're taking this thing, the more we are seeing the fruit. It's just it's just beautiful to watch what the Lord is doing here. So with that said, we're going to get to our guests talking about the subject of narcissism today. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we are back on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you're watching on YouTube, you will notice that my beard is missing. (laughs) I have shaved it off for the first time in, yeah, over two years, believe it or not. But, well, sometimes we just need to shift. And here's the truth. Some of you guys, after you hear this program, are also going to need to shift. Because today we're talking about a subject that, is going to be a bit of a uh, (laughs) painful experience uh, for some of us because we're going to be talking about narcissism. And and, and to help me talk about this subject, I've brought on Dr. David Orison. Now, he's been a pastor for over 30 years and is the executive director of Grace for the Heart, a ministry dedicated to proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all acts aspects of Christian life. Um, He has served in the Evangelical Free Church and the United Presbyterian Church and holds a PhD in theology. Now, he's also written a book recently, uh, and it's on the subject of narcissism. It's actually called Narcissism in the Church. Dr. Orison, welcome to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. Well, it's really good to have you, and and I'm really excited to be having this conversation. You know, the more I've learned about narcissism, the more I'm able to see it and discern it. And like many others, I think that, you know, um, for a long time before I began to do some of my own research into the subject, I was among those that would encounter this thing and not know what to call it, not even necessarily knowing what to do with it or how to handle it. And uh, it, it really does affect many of us. M- many people are actually survivors of narcissistic abuse. Um, many people have, well, had the uh, unfortunate circumstance of working for years under a narcissistic boss. They have submitted under the heavy hand of narcissistic personalities and they have the battle scars you know that are still bleeding sometimes <laughs> metaphorically speaking but but yet we don't even necessarily know what it is and so i want to begin this conversation by letting you tell us a little bit about your background explain what narcissism is and how you became aware of the issues that narcissistic personalities create mm. 
Very good. Well, I like you say, I've been a pastor for a long time. So as a pastor, you begin to learn about people. If you if you care about people at all, if you care about you know how you're reaching them, and um, you learn. You learn about their kids. You learn about how they interact in their marriages and all those kinds of things and how they think to a certain extent. Uh, I think pastoring, to do it right, takes a great deal of empathy. And and empathy means you, you connect with the emotions and the thinking patterns of other people um, and sometimes bring those in, you know, to your own detriment. But at least, you know, that's part of the deal. Um, about uh, 15 16 years ago, something like that, uh, I was involved in a church where the congregation had been through a lot of legalism, a lot of legalistic teaching. We had one couple in the church that um, had some unique marriage problems, and I started to do some counseling with them and worked with them in, in a point where I I came out frustrated every time and, and could not figure out what in the world was going on. And I think you said it well. Uh, those that encounter narcissists often come away saying, you know, what the heck was that? Mm-hmm. You know, I just, it doesn't make sense. You, you, you find that you're, you're asking who thinks like that? Who says those kinds of things? Who does that stuff? And, and I was looking at, you know, this, the man in this relationship and I really puzzled as to how he was interacting with his wife. What I found was that she would say something opening herself and he had some incredible way of pushing a certain button and she would just explode. She would just explode in rage and, and grief and I mean, overwhelming crying and it was strange. It was just really strange. I mean, it was the point where I'm looking at, you know, is this demonic? What is going on? And, and, and by the way, which one of them has the demon? <laughs> you know, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that opens another whole area of discussion. But. So, so he's making her look crazy. He is making her look crazy. So, and I didn't realize that that's what was happening, but that's exactly what was happening. Um, he knew exactly how to push her button at just the right time to make her look crazy, to make her look like she was the radical one. She was the one that was way off. Well, I started looking at him, and then he would also call me. He would call me. Get, get this. Now, this is, you and I were talking before about, you know, maybe why pastors should be careful of counseling. He would call me at 1030 at night. Okay. Well, never, never a simple conversation. So by midnight, we're finally, you know, I, I'm finally able to extricate myself and say, okay, it's time we got to quit. And I began to think, what in the world is going on with this guy? What's, this is strange. I'm being manipulated, you know? Um, I'll tell you this before I go on, but one of the things that I teach when I teach counselors how to deal with narcissists is I say one of the ways that a counselor or somebody, you know, somebody who works with people um, can guess or at least begin to suspect that you're working with a narcissist is if you have fantasies about killing your client. (laughs) If you, if you have fantasies and dream daydreams basically about, how much easier your life would be as a counselor if this guy got hit by a truck, you might be dealing with a narcissist. Because what it's doing is it's revealing 
a whole lot of frustration. He's not, he's not somebody you're working with in a normal way. He's manipulating you instead of learning from you. And, and when, as soon as I say that, which is fascinating, I, whenever I talk to somebody who's involved in counseling, they're all like, (laughs) 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 because they, they've had those thoughts and they can't admit them. (laughs) You know, you don't admit those kinds of thoughts. Not going to admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I went to Barnes and Noble and I mean, not, not exactly the place I'd normally go for counseling materials, but I used to like to go there and get a cup of coffee and read a book because they were very gracious and let me do that. And I found a book called Malignant Self-Love by Sam Vaknin, $45 paperback. Okay. Just a small book, not, not anything exciting, where he basically explains his life as a narcissist. And and I was overwhelmed. I started reading this. And the thing that just really connected with me was this one phrase. It's a paraphrase, but it's, it's close. He says, the most common response to narcissistic abuse is rage. Wow. And I thought, bingo. That's what I'm seeing. This uncontrolled emotional response that, that's... It's full of confusion. It's full of desperation. It's, it's passion. Um, it's impotence. I mean, it's everything. I, I, I have this thing I absolutely must fix in my life, and I can't because I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on. Um, this lady, when she first talked to me, she, she believed the whole thing was her fault. She really did. She believed it was her fault. And, uh, and as it worked out, no, it wasn't her fault. She was the victim of a long series, uh, well, nearly 20 years of an abusive marriage uh, where he never laid a hand on her. You know, he's a good Christian, um, never laid a hand on her, never hardly raised his voice to her. I mean, it was, you, there's nothing overt that you could point to that he was doing to her. Uh, that was my introduction to narcissism. Started uh, doing some reading, started talking to other people, and over and over, I got the one response, that fits exactly what I'm experiencing. Or, you know, you're describing my mother, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's my boss. Like you said, it's in multiple relationships, and it's, it's this amazing ability that, that some people have to get into almost your very soul and start to tweak and poke and prod and manipulate until they've taken pretty much everything that you've got. And, and actually the people on the closer to the end of a narcissistic relationship will say that they were, they are just drained. They just have nothing. Um, Since that time, again, as I've taught counselors, I say, if you, find that you've got a husband and wife that come in for marriage counseling and she just sits and she just agrees or she nods and she just doesn't seem to have anything to contribute. Look for narcissistic abuse. Might not be from the husband. Uh, very well might be. Um, but it could be your mother or a mother-in-law. Um, somebody is draining that energy, that life. Somebody's taking that away. And um, it's, it's a consumptive uh, process. In fact, uh, you know, try to look for scriptural parallels 
And um, one of the one of the ones I found recently that I thought was very helpful was mm-hmm. the whole concept, the Old Testament concept of the locust, the devourer, who comes oh, wow. in and takes everything. And the, the nice part of that is the promise of the Lord to restore what the devourer has taken. So there's a there's a real hopeful positive um you know in terms of connection to the lord that we can look forward to so so okay in a single sentence what is narcissism so narcissism is the devotion to a superior image okay and i'll explain that devotion to a superior image um that uses the depersonalization of other people mm. to support that image. Wow. Okay. So let me, I'll give you a little background and I think this will be helpful for a lot of people. The, the general consensus among scholars is that a, um, a narcissist develops very early in life as a, as a child who doesn't connect with parents for some reason. So, I, you know, the typical one is the abandoned child, the, the, the child whose parents are alcoholics or drug addicts or gone all the time or something like that. But, but you get the same phenomenon sometimes with a child that's doted on, a child that gets extra attention. And basically, it's the child who's told, and, and I developed this a few years ago because I had a, a kind of remembered a case that I dealt with years and years ago. Um, a child who's told that they're not valuable when they are themselves. They're only, val- they're only valuable when they're not themselves. So this is, the little, this is the little boy, okay, who gets scolded for getting dirty, mm-hmm. who gets dressed up in nice clothes and paraded around and told to be quiet in front of other people. That's the only time that he gets attention. If he gets those nice clothes dirty, then he gets punished. But it's the nature of little boys to get dirty. So now what he has to learn is, I can't be myself. Myself, as, as myself, I'm not valuable. I'm not special. I'm not important. Um, if you think in terms of the abandoned child, that's fairly easy to see. The, the abandoned child is only wanted and, and abandon basically somebody who has parents, but, but you know, doesn't get any time or energy from the parents, um, only wanted when it serves the purpose, you know, the, the parent's purpose. But that's also true of the, of the smothered child, right? The smothered child is being controlled also for the parent's purposes. So, you, you know, um, here, let me fix that for you. Here, let me do that for you. Um, you know, I just saw a little meme on the little engine that could, and the little engine is at the bottom of the hill, and it's saying, you know, Mom, can you push me? <laughs> you know, that's the little engine that, that needs Mom to push, because what he's learned is, I can't get up that hill. I can't do that. So, so the little, the doted child, the one that gets all the attention, all the special, is also told that he can't do it on his own. See, he can't be successful. It's an interesting, you, you think, well, boy, you know, those are two extremes. No, they're not. They're really two sides of the same coin. And, uh, and both of them can breed the narcissist. So the narcissist says, the little, as, the, as a little child, little child says, if I want acceptance and love, I have to 
play the game. I have to be somebody I'm not because when I'm me, nobody likes me. And that's, uh, I could, I could I keep going on and on on tangents here, but that's one of the, the real tricks of understanding narcissism in the most practical sense. Today, if you, if you ask a person on the street, what is narcissism? They'll say, well, it's somebody who loves themselves. Not at all. The narcissist hates himself. The narcissist loves the image of himself that he's putting in front of everybody else and expects you to love it also. Um, that explains all kinds of things in narcissistic relationships, by the way. Well, uh, go what ahead. you're saying makes so much sense. Now, I, I mentioned this just briefly to you, Dave, but at Bride Ministries, we have a huge outreach, right? Mm -hmm. to survivors of satanic ritual abuse mm -hmm. and other types of abusive backgrounds. Um, and this kind of treatment is prolific across the board because one, there are no boundaries for the children. Physical, sexual, psychological sure. abuse is actually planned out and charted so that they can be abused to the point of shattering and then they begin to manifest different personalities to survive the different types of abuse they receive. Now, in that case, when a person has different personalities just to survive the abuse, what are they learning? Yeah. I have to learn to be someone else yes. in order to survive. And the only way to please these people that are so demonized and evil that they would do this to me is to be this other image. It's a breeding ground for narcissistic personalities, which is why I see a lot of survivors exhibiting narcissistic characteristics. And sure. It's not necessarily that anyone wants to or they've signed up and said, I just want to be narcissistic. But the way you explain it helps so much. No, nobody grows up saying, I want to be a narcissist. Although, although there's a little... There's a little hint of that because narcissism is the way to get ahead in a world like ours. Mm -hmm. So the narcissistic track is a successful track in our culture. And, and so there is some of that, that even non-narcissists know that they have to be almost ruthless in dealing with people, for example. Um, you have to be a mean boss in order to get your people to do their job, that kind of thing. So we learned some of that. But, but I think you're right. Nobody grows up to, and says, I, I'm going to be a narcissist because it, you know, it's going to work well for me. Narcissists are not happy people. You know, they're trapped people. They're, they're fearful people. They're, they live in fear all the time that they're going to get exposed, that people are going to find that little kid that's still hiding under the bed. You know, that if they do, then... What are they going to, you know, what are they going to find? How are they going to be able to manipulate me? Narcissists manipulate other people so that other people don't manipulate them. Wow. <laughs> you know, they're afraid of being out there. Narcissists have no empathy. By the way, that is by definition. I had, I have had people tell me, well, my narcissist, I, I try to encourage people to say it that way. Uh, my narcissist is very empathic. And I say, well, if he is, then he's not a narcissist. Because by definition, narcissists don't connect with other people's emotions. However, 
a narcissist can be a student of other people's emotions and can watch your emotions and mirror that back to you so that you feel like they're accepting, you feel like they're listening, you feel like they're understanding. And you just, you'll just eat that up because you like it, but you're honestly getting nothing from them. And, and what I'll have wives especially say, and I'll explain why it's mostly men, um, but wives especially will say, I see now that there was never any love in the relationship. There was always this need for control and affirmation. The narcissist needed attention, needed to be taken care of, and would do whatever it took until I gave him that. So, so in the beginning of a relationship, narcissists are very friendly, very gracious people. Um, I've met narcissist pastors who are the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And you think, man, this is, you know, I'm, well, in fact, you feel honored to be in their presence. Because look, you know, I've had uh, one of the most narcissistic pastors that I've known um, invite me to lunch. And I thought, boy, that's that's really nice. I mean, here I am in a little church. He's got a great big church and, and we've had a nice conversation and, and it was very personable. Um, I also worked with his staff members who were terribly abused and just abandoned when the time came where, well, in fact, one of his guys came and disagreed with him one time that pastor had made a decision and the staff member went in and said, you know, I think this is not a good decision. He says, okay, you're fired. And this was somebody he had known as a friend since seminary days. You know, <laughs> what? <laughs> the guy was shocked. And he says, no, I, you can't work here if you're going to disagree with me. That was that. So, so, but, but when he was lunch with me, he was very gracious, very kind. And if you talk with wives, the courting days with a narcissist are fantastic. The guy's the most caring, gentle, loving person they've ever met. They listen. He's, they'll say, you know, I don't understand. He knew everything about me. He, he loved me. He heard everything that I said. He could, he could feed it all back. Um, and now I don't know if he even knows my name. <laughs> you know, they, it's like, what happened? Well, that's narcissistic technique to get to know somebody. These people, have, they do it subconsciously. It's natural. By the time they're adults, um, this is well-rehearsed behavior. Uh, this is, it's, if I can say it this way, it's not phony. Okay, it's it's absolutely real, honest, core behavior from these people. Now, are they manipulating? Are they you know facetious in the in the caring that they give? Of course, but they appear very gracious. You know, they're very kind people. Sometimes, <laughs> on the other end, not so much. <laughs> so, I'm not sure how we got into that track, but that's an interesting track. <laughs> Well, because you're a wellspring of wisdom on the subject. So, so <laughs> open up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically like trying to, um, you know, fill up a cup of water from a geyser. It's like, you know, <laughs> oh, no. Um, so let me ask you this, okay? From a technical standpoint, we're talking about narcissism. 
in a bit of generality. Now, there is a technical psychological diagnosis for narcissism as a condition. Right. And then there's narcissism in a more general sense of behavior patterns. And you discuss that uh, tension in your book. uh, and, and, And so I just want to give you a little bit of time to break that down for us. Yeah. That's important. And it, 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 where that really hits the road uh-huh. is when a wife or, a, or, or anyone actually in a narcissistic relationship will go to the narcissist and say, you're a narcissist. Yeah. Or if they go to a counselor and they say, my husband, my coworker, my pastor is a narcissist. Well, in order to have um, an objective diagnosis, I mean, you need a set of you know, criteria, you need, you need some rules. What does that mean in this? Now, actually the criteria for, you know, determining narcissism, I usually use the DSM four because I like the way that that's written out. I mentioned that in my book. Um, it's fairly plain. It's simple. It's something that you'll see several of those in any narcissist or, you know, manipulative person that, you know, uh, they say that there's what, there's supposed to be five of nine in order to diagnose somebody as a narcissist. When I have actually, and I have done this, sent somebody who I thought was a narcissist to a professional counselor, and I don't consider myself, (laughs) I've gotten paid for counseling, but I don't consider myself professional counselor. That's not my training. My training is theology. Um, But those, you know, who are supposed to be in control of that area of our culture, if you send to them, they very rarely will find the person to be a narcissist. Because in their book, a narcissist is a Ted Bundy, and a narcissist is the is the Unabomber. Uh, you know, a narcissist is the is the um, BTK killer. You know, I mean, it's it's these extreme people. The, those are the only real narcissists in their books, and I understand that. I understand that they have a certain amount of time, a certain amount of energy. You can't find narcissism in everyone. You know, it'd be terrible. You know, um, but at the same time and I use this in my book too, because I think it's important. Not every flu out there is influenza, but the people are still sick. (laughs) Right. So so something's happening. (laughs) And, And maybe, maybe it's not exactly the influenza virus, but it's close enough that we can use that word in a helpful way. Now, I understand that if you're going to go to court and you're going to try to accuse somebody of, you know, having, you know, a psychological, you know, problem called narcissism, uh, you better, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's and have everything just right. So I tell people, don't do that. In fact, as as much as possible, don't use the words. Describe the symptoms. Hmm. Describe how this person had no concern about using you. You know, how, how this person um, stole from you without any concern about, you know, what it would mean. To describe what happened. Don't describe, don't try to label with, an, with uh, you know, the word. Because we're wide open for that, you know, for, for people saying, oh, no, no, it's not narcissism. Um, at the same time, we do use words like flu. Uh, we do say so-and-so is paranoid, <laughs> even though we're not diagnosing them with paranoia, <laughs> mm. we, 
we understand that there's a, a popular version, you know, of that. And so I don't see any reason why not to use the term. I'd love to come up with a better term. I really would. I, and I've tried, in fact, we had some fun on my, on my blog one time of uh, trying to come up with different words. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> the only thing is I told people, you know, try not to cuss too strongly. Oh goodness gracious. <laughs> use the worst words you can think of. <laughs> but narcissism encompasses a lot of the things that, that we see. The other thing that probably ought to be tossed in is there is, I think everybody agrees that there's a narcissistic continuum. Mm. There is a behavior that is narcissistic that non-narcissists do. Okay. So, um, for example, you know, I've, I've got a good friend and I love him. Um, he's, he's one of these very abrupt people. He'll, he'll be having lunch or coffee with me and all of a sudden he stands up looks at his phone. I've got to go. Now it's not something on his phone that means he has to go. <laughs> it's not like he's got an appointment or he's got a call. It's just, he's ready for the conversation to end. <laughs> and so he's done. Now I could look at that and I could say, wow. Yeah. But you know, what about me? <laughs> it's a narcissistic behavior that I don't see as a narcissist. I don't, that's not who he is. We all have those kinds of things, particularly when we're traumatized, particularly when we're under stress. Um, you mentioned someplace along the line that people um, who've been involved with narcissists sometimes find themselves, you know, act, you know, you begin to wonder which one of us is the narcissist. So people ask me all the time, they'll say, you know, am I a narcissist? And, and uh, you know, I, you don't want to be quite so flippant as to say, well, the fact that you asked the question means no, um, because you'd hope that someday a real narcissist would actually ask that question. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> On the other hand, the chances are good that you see narcissistic behavior in yourself and you see, you know, um, the, the responses of narcissistic victims from some of the people around you. So what's happening? You know, why are you acting that way? If you can work with the person and the person is, is open to say, oh, wow, I see that. I see what I'm doing. And then begin to back away from that. And I would say that person's not a narcissist. That mm -hmm. person maybe learned behavior as they grew up, you know, kind of what you said, you know, especially from some of the young people that grow up in a particularly abusive situations where their emotions and their, even their sense of identity has been, you know, um, so manipulated. That's all they learned how to do. And, and is, and we all know this, that you can walk with Jesus with a sincere heart and still act like a pagan most of the day, right? Because our normal responses in life come from what we used to be. They come from what we were trained to do before. You know, um, you cut me off in traffic, you'll probably hear words I won't say from the pulpit. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, there that's the way life works. And and so yeah, I don't want to do that, but that's what comes out in times of stress. And so narcissistic behavior is something we see in ourselves in times of stress. Um, the idea of pulling back, you know, protecting myself, 
pushing everybody else away, being highly critical, perhaps snappy. You know, I mean, you know, if you're not feeling well, if somebody else is not feeling well, they snap at you. You know, that's where a lot of that comes from. So I think it's helpful to me to to tell people, are you acting like a narcissist or are you a narcissist? Because there's a difference. I'm so good. So, so good. Uh, on the subject of the cultural historical reference, I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least bring that into the conversation. Where does narcissism in a, in a cultural historical reference come from? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the old story of Narcissus and Echo is a, is a kind of a fun story. Um, Narcissus was a very handsome young man in Greek mythology. And in fact, is the, the person we get the word Narcissus from for the uh, Narcissus flower. And uh, very handsome to the point where everybody told him how handsome he was. What a beautiful young man he was. Everybody loved him. Everybody would serve him and would give to him. And he began to own that. He began to believe that about himself. Now, the Greeks had, a, a, I think, a fascinating ability to talk about psychological and sociological problems in these stories. And, uh, and this one is fascinating to me because one of the persons that are connected to narcissists in the story is Echo. Well, if you remember, Echo talked too much. <laughs> and so she was condemned by the gods to um, always... Instead of being able to introduce her own things, she could only repeat what somebody else said. That was the idea of Echo. So Echo falls in love with Narcissus, like everyone else did, right? And Narcissus thinks this is, this is the greatest relationship of all because here's this woman who doesn't talk to him, but she just repeats back to him what he says. <laughs> Except that what he says is so dumb. <laughs> 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 because when he says it, he doesn't like hearing it. It's not, it's not pleasant. He doesn't say nice things to other people. He's all about himself. So he, he you know, it, it feeds back to him this negative um, stuff that he's been saying to others. So now he sends her away. He, can, he condemns her. He doesn't want anything to do with her. And in grief, you know, according to the story, she goes into the deep recesses of a cave and never comes out. And so that's why you can stand outside the cave and call her name and it'll come back to you because she's way back. Anyway, it's a kind of a fun story. But the, the rest of the Narcissus, the Narcissus story, of course, was that um, he saw his reflection in the pool one day and leaned over the pool and people tried to get him away from the pool, but he fell in love with himself. And, and because he fell in love with himself, he couldn't pull himself away from his own image. And one day they went to see Narcissus by the pool and he was gone. And the, this one version of the story says that he drowned in the pool. Another version says that he turned into the Narcissus flower. Um, but the idea was that he's absorbed by his image. And again, a a beautiful, a perfect um, uh, illustration of what happens to this person who rejects himself, loves only the image, and then is consumed by the image uh, so that the self, the real self behind the narcissist is probably lost forever and can't be pulled out. Now, I don't know. Um, one of the things I try to, to say I don't counsel narcissists. 
there are people who do that. They get paid a lot more than me, and, and they should. Um, it's fascinating to me that one of the very few books that's out there, Wendy, Wendy Beharry's book, um, uh, I can't remember the title right now, but um, it, it's a good book, and, and she is all about counseling narcissists. Uh, that's her thing, is counseling narcissists. But her book is all about victims of narcissism. Mm. Uh, because counseling a narcissist is not something that I don't, I don't think you can formulize. I don't think you can put it, put it down and say, here's how we walk a narcissist, you know, to victory. Um, Hmm. I don't, I don't think that's something that can be done. I I think practically um, the best that can be done in counseling for a real narcissist is to learn how to adjust behavior on the basis of accepting that others are real, not feeling that others are real, that others are real people. That's that depersonalization again. Um, Accepting that others are real and I'm going to have to treat them as real so I will adjust my behaviors. So what we talk about in terms of behavior management is probably the best that actually works for a narcissist. Uh, Changing their hearts to learn how to love. um, I don't know. Now, God can do what he wants to do. That's another whole question. <laughs> That's different. But counseling, I don't think, is going to fix that. I don't think you can convince someone to love. Um, or to, uh, you know, I don't think you can train somebody to empathize. Well, it's a good thing we got Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> now, I do want to ask you this. All right, so, so why do narcissists feel the need to control their environments? Yeah. One word, Mm. fear. Wow. Narcissists are afraid. They are afraid of losing. That's why they're so desperate to control. That's that's a very simple answer. Um, And I will, I'll go to the wall for that one. The the strongest narcissists out there. You talk about politicians. You talk about you know CEOs of big organizations. The people who are the most successful and most overtly narcissistic that you, that you think of there, you know, they're the ones that are, that are so big that you think nothing could hurt them. They're the ones that are the most afraid. Mm. You know, they're, they're afraid that they're going to get found out. They're going to get it. Well, and, and there's all kinds of reasons. Number one, there's the, there's that little kid that's still hiding under the bed, right? Um, there's that reality of weakness and abandonment and not being able to measure up and never being acceptable that they owned, you know, from whatever background they had, they owned that. And they can't ever let anyone see that. But there's also a whole lot of things that the narcissist does to get ahead. Um, narcissists are liars and cheaters. They don't care what rules they break. They don't care what people they hurt. Um, along the line, they, they leave a lot of dead bodies and on a lot of hurting people. And so the narcissist has a lot to be afraid of. Um, They build their, their kingdoms, if you will, you know, on the backs of others. So not only are they afraid that those people will come after them, but they're, but they're afraid they'll fail them. You know, they'll afraid. If you think of, if you think of a, Building a company, let's say even a small company, well, even a ministry, you think of building that with other people. And narcissists um, are very smart 
and are very, um, uh, what's the word, very quick. Okay, they think quickly, they act quickly, and they usually act the way they, ex they want to act. They accomplish what, what they expect to accomplish, but they don't do their job. Okay, so the, the narcissist car salesman is not really um, a good car salesman in terms of long-term relationship with the business, long-term uh, relationships with customers, not really the kind of salesman you want. Uh, the, the narcissist politician doesn't read the bills, okay, Does, is not the person that really knows what they're doing. They've got somebody for that, right? <laughs> They've got somebody that they can use for that. They don't write their own speeches. You know, they, they don't do these kinds of things. Anyway, um, the narcissist tends to surround themselves with other people. Well, think about this now. You're, you build a ministry on the backs of other people, the shoulders, let's say, on other people. What if they don't do their job? If they don't do their job, I'm going to fall right? I'm going to have a problem. I'm going to crash and burn. So now I have to micromanage these people. Not because I know what they're doing. I don't know what, I don't know what their work is. You know, I don't care. You know, they're just, the, they're the minions. They, you know, <laughs> just do their work supposedly. Um, but because I don't want them to let me down, I'm afraid that they would let me down. So I have to ride herd on them. I have to get that extra hour out of them. I have to get that extra report. I have to criticize in such a way that they'll give me that 110%. Um, and if they get used up, that's fine. I'll find somebody else, you know, and, and bring that person in. But imagine living that way all the time. And then going home, okay, and have a wife who doesn't measure up, and, uh, and kids who don't measure up, um, kids who might make you look bad, you know, again, think if you're a pastor, you know, and, and your kids are found to be doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Oh, my goodness, what's that going to look like? What are people going to think? You know, all those things that, that we think mom used to say, that's what the narcissist says. So they're constantly afraid, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we used to say that, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, they're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so the narcissist, his goal is to control that conversation, right? There, there's two or three people out there. What are they talking about? Well, they're going to talk about me. So I'll go out and make sure they're talking about the right things about me. Hmm. I'll go out and control that conversation. Now, I don't care if they talk smack about me, if they are negative about me, as long as they remember who controls them, as long as they remember who's in charge, as long as they don't bring me down and compromise me in the course of that conversation. I mean, it's a fascinating mindset. But imagine having to control everything all the time and worrying about how everything comes together. Because it's all about the propagating of the image. Yeah, it's all about that. That image must not crumble, must not fall. Yeah. It's a, it's a very precarious. And by the way, it takes a lot of energy to do that. If you, and you, it makes sense, right? Um, what happens when you're spending lots of energy to accomplish something and you're focused, so focused on getting something that, that's precarious, you're worried about it falling, and somebody comes and says, Hi, hon. Would you like to go out for supper tonight? 
<laughs> People talk about narcissistic rage. There's a, there's a constant undercurrent of rage and anger for the narcissist. Um, on one hand, he's very gracious and very kind, but almost like the flip of a switch. He can call you every name in the book and do every kind of backstabbing, awful thing to you. And, and you wonder, who is this person? Because he was just really nice the other day. You know, what did I, and now what people ask is, what did I do to set that off? See, what, what did I cause? Did I do something wrong? And that's, what, again, put yourself in a wife's position. Um, if she's constantly living in fear of what she might do to set that off, then she learns that she's not acceptable as she is. Mm-hmm. She has to be somebody phony mm. in order to make it. Most of us don't function very well. You don't get to start that as an adult um, and, and be very successful with that. That's why people work with children. Um, to start that as an adult causes all kinds of disparity in our, in our hearts and our minds and eventually causes problems and, and doesn't work. I mean, I, I think it's fairly ineffective. Um, but anyway, that's, so is it common for people to feel that, uh, you know, old saying walking on eggshells around the narcissist? Oh yeah. Yeah. All the time. Mm. Um, I I hear that constantly from wives. Now, by the way, I've, I've mentioned several times wives in relationship to narcissistic husbands. Sure. According to the, the literature, the, the number is something around 75%. I, I don't know if that's just so widely repeated that it has become the number or if that's actually the result of some kind of study. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's certainly been my experience that it's even more than that. Um, I think there's a couple of possible answers to that. One is 75% of men are men. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so generally, when we refer to narcissists, to use the male pronoun is going to work well. Okay. Uh, I think the reason for that is that in a male-dominated society, competition, um, striving against others, is more productive than empathy and sympathy, right? We get rewarded for being aggressive. Now, I'm not against a male-dominated society. I mean, I'm an old-timer, so I, I, you know, I value those kinds of things and those kinds of differences. But I, I think that we have to understand that when you reward ruthless behavior in leadership, you're going to get more ruthless behavior in leadership. That's the way that works. <laughs> And people who find that easy are going to be drawn to that. So we have pastors, you know, uh, coming into a church and getting devoured by certain churches. And the guy that follows them, the narcissist, comes in and it is ready-made for him because he knows how to handle these people. He knows what to do. He sets up a kingdom that serves him. The church has been ready for it. and and they're happy, and he's happy, quote-unquote, um, whereas other people can't, can't function in that. I think we find more pastors, um, more politicians, more CEOs of companies, <coughs> excuse me, 
um, among uh, male leadership, partly because we reward that kind of behavior. We reward the aggression and, uh, um, if you will, depersonalization. Men are much better at that, I think. Now, let me ask this question, just because it's in my mind, and I'm actually very curious about this. Because I, I've had enough people come to me with reports about their narcissistic mother. Uh-huh. Maybe the father's a bit more distant. Mm-hmm. Now, the mother's a recipient of abuse, mm-hmm. but the child experiences the narcissistic mother. Now, do you think that in certain relationships, there may be a tendency for women to experience the narcissistic tendencies of the husband while the children experience the narcissistic tendencies of the mother? Or is that just happenstance coincidence in my, you know, I'm very... I think think that happens. I, I think that happens because mom passes it down you know, again, it's what works in the system. And, um, you know, I mean, you, a, a woman who is in relationship with a narcissist has to play the game. You either play the game or get out. I mean, there, there's almost no, no in-between there. And playing the game means you run the kids. You, you, I, I think probably that's a, it'd be an interesting thing to go back and do some research what percentage of family homes have one narcissist versus two? Um, many have two. It's surprising how many narcissists are drawn to each other. Uh, that's again, people don't don't think that's a natural. It doesn't make sense. Why would a narcissist be drawn to another narcissist? Because the little kid under the bed wants to believe that they can be accepted, that they could be welcomed. And what is the narcissist good at? making people feel like they're accepted and wanted and valued. So another narcissist comes along and begins to pull that, that little child out of the bed, out from under the bed. And pretty soon you've got two narcissists in a relationship. Fascinating. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there's another, there's another answer to, to your question that's probably okay. more likely. And that is that women in our culture aren't as aggressive and aren't as rewarded for being aggressive. That's changing for sure. Um, but if you talk about our mothers and grandmothers and those generations behind us, their forms of manipulation were much more what we call covert, right? They were covert narcissists. Uh, they were ones who manipulated and, and adjusted your value and identity by little comments. Okay. So I'll say that the, the narcissist is the guy who comes into your house and says, man, this place is a mess. You ought to do some things and get this place cleaned up. The, the, that's the overt narcissist. The covert narcissist is the mother-in-law who comes to visit the grandchildren and brings her rubber gloves and buckets and scrubbing materials along with her. Okay. Now she's not saying anything overtly. She's not being critical. She's just there to help. <laughs> so the, the covert narcissist is very difficult to identify because they look like they're helpful people. All, you know, and if you try to accuse them of anything, they say, well, but I, I was just trying to be kind. I was just trying to be understanding. I mean, I, I know you're burdened as a young mother. I'm, I'm just here to help, you know, but what she communicated, every young wife knows exactly what she's communicating. She's still communicating. Your place is a mess and you're, 
you know, you really should get it fixed up. They're saying exactly the same thing, but they're doing it differently. So I think women develop that kind of ability to, to criticize and to say things in a different way because that has been more rewarded. Now, I know people will say, well, that's sexist talk and all that. I'm sorry. Maybe it is. It's part of a generation probably past. I'm not sure that's going to be continuing very well. Um, but it's oh. what those people have experienced. <laughs> Let me tell you, in my generation, I learned, <laughs> I, I better know how to cook. <laughs> That's right. I better know how to cook. <laughs> you can't. You can't roll the dice on that one. No, no. And I got lucky. My wife can cook. Yeah. But you just got. You got to be prepared. <laughs> you better know how to clean. You better know how to cook. Otherwise. That's right. And if you do cook, you better clean, right? <laughs> um. Now, just just for you know kind of fleshing this out a little bit more. Uh, in your example, you talk about the overt narcissist versus the covert narcissist on the subject of cleaning. Mm -hmm. um, now, just picking on this example, which is really, really good. If a person's house is a mess, what is the non-narcissist going to do in order to communicate this place is a mess and it needs to be cleaned up because maybe it really is? Right, right. And that's, that's a good question. How do I do that and not make people think I'm trying to control them? And right. that's the answer. I mean, you, you just, you come and you say, I would say you give the result of your effort over to someone else, right? Over to the Lord is what I would say. Uh -huh. So I would go into some place and I would say, you know, it looks to me like you're overwhelmed. Nah. Can you use some help? You that's know, good. Is that, is there some way? And if they say no, you know, um, in fact, I'm offended. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't mean to offend, you know, just offering a help, you know, some help. And, and a lot of offers to help are refused. Hmm. You understand that. Um, but some are accepted and much appreciated. So how do you, how do you do that? You do that, you know, the old, the old thing is you earn, um, you earn the place to make the criticism. Um, you don't offer the criticism without a solution, a solution that you're willing to contribute to. Because by the way, the, the mother-in-law who brings her gloves and cleaning supplies will cheer her daughter-in-law on as the daughter-in-law does the cleaning. Mm. But, but mom won't actually do a lot of cleaning. Mm. She'll play with the kids and she'll come over and, and check on the daughter-in-law and see how things are going once in a while. You know, But the daughter-in-law will leave, will when mom leaves the daughter-in-law will be exhausted because she's been doing all the work mom will take all the credit <laughs> of helping when the truth is mom played with the kids most of the time it, again fascinating personalities <laughs> so why is it that narcissists find it so hard to feel compassion yeah. Where's that break? Yeah, I, I think two things. Again, one is compassion makes us feel vulnerable. We've got to open ourselves to receive other people in. The other thing is we find it difficult to respect other people who are weak. Okay, when, when you judge somebody else as being weak, it's hard to respect them. 
So now the narcissist does not want to feel weak, does not want to feel sad, for example. So a common story is uh, the, the wife's parent will die. The narcissist's husband is, he'll do his duty in terms of, of, you know, showing up for the funeral and that kind of stuff, but then settle it with, okay, now that's over. Can we go home? You know, just a, just a total bland, uncaring kind of thing. And the wife is shocked by the fact that it doesn't seem to bother him that her father has just died. Well, no, it actually doesn't. And in fact, he doesn't want it to. Mm -hmm. It won't bother him when his own family dies. Um, he will he will push that away, those feelings, as much as possible, because those feelings make him feel weak. Others who exhibit those feelings just show themselves to be weak, and he has no respect for them. Wow. So the boss of the of the small company, you know, the wife loses her husband and says, well, "I don't, I can't come to work now." He's okay. How long are you going to be gone? You know, because that's all that matters to him, and he's not about to care or to respect the fact that it's you know, going to be deep on her heart. That, that doesn't connect with him. And he's never going to let it connect because the price of that connection is too high. Um, and we all know that. We all know that the, that the price of compassion is significant. We might actually have to do something. We might actually have to spend some time to give something of ourselves. Um, the narcissist doesn't want to do that. Not interested. That's so good. You know, um, and, and, and what I hear a lot, like, you know, as you describe the narcissist, it's just the term self-protection. Yeah. And, 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 you know, um, I mean, that's something that actually a lot of people struggle with is the issue of, can I let Jesus be my protector? Oh boy. Yeah. Because if I was hurt, if I was abused, if I went through trauma, if I, um, endured an injustice and Jesus didn't stop it then what the heck am I going to put my trust in now can I trust Jesus and many people at one level or another even if you're deep in the subconscious are saying no way Jose don't trust God to be my protector must protect myself right, right. I've battled with this one Sure. I've battled with this one. Yeah. And, um, you know, to the, to the point where it, it really, really hurt, like to, to put the trust out there as the wounds are coming in. And it's like, hey, you know. Um, yeah. What's the connection between self-protection and, and, and the feeling that God will fail them for the narcissist? Yeah. You know, <laughs> makes me think of an old Chuck Smith quote that I heard on the radio 30 years ago, probably. And it was, it was one of those that is just absolutely profound. And uh, I don't know what, at the same time, he says, he said, every time I've given God a deadline, he's missed it. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. <laughs> <laughs> the narcissist can't afford to have God miss his deadlines, right? Oh, my God. I'm not placing my faith over there. 
you know, I got to make sure that deadline because I don't want to look bad. I mean, we see it on TV every day when we watch the politicians. You know, um, there was a meme or a little political cartoon of all the of all the politicians now that are scouring their yearbooks to try to find what you know what they might have done wrong in the past. You know, um, you know they're they're desperate to make sure they don't look bad. They can't afford to look bad, um, and and so you can't just trust others to make you look good. They might fail. You know. So now what about us as Christians? Um, that is not part of the learning process. I think, I think real Christian growth happens uh, and real Christian victory happens when you learn not to see failure as a bad thing. Wow. Embrace failure. And you recognize that sometimes failure is the part of the walk God wanted you to see and wanted you to experience. That's tough. That's tough. I've, I've had to close a church. I mean, there's nothing worse for a pastor than to, than to have a church that he's been serving close. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get this, you know, you get this big capital L on your forehead. At least you feel like you've got this big capital L on your forehead. Uh, you know, were there things I could have done to fix this? You know, you, you live with that for the next 20 years trying to figure this out. You know, what did I do? Who, who can I blame? You know, always kind of knowing that, that the real blame must be mine, right? I must have failed. And, and pastors have things that they say. If you've been there longer than seven years, all the problems are yours. You can't blame your predecessor anymore. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the real answer is, yeah, I probably failed. And you know what? Because I fail, I need a savior. Mm. I need a savior. If it's up to me, it ain't gonna be. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Those nice little platitudes don't work in real life. And the truth is, failure is part of the game. Failure is part of the Christian walk regularly. It is a normal part of the Christian walk. It, every time it should drive us back and make us say, thank you, Jesus. Hmm. This, you know, I see how much I need you. You know, I, I can't pat myself on the back for any of this. This is you, your kindness, your favor, your power. I'm going to give that all to you. Um, Failure is part of the game, but not again, not for the narcissist because the image, the image must be maintained. If the image fails, remember, it's never the narcissist that's criticized. It's always the image that's criticized. Um, if the image fails, um, what do we do? You know, what else is there? There is no backup. There is, there is no one else, you know, um, which of course raises a, another big question about, you know, can a narcissist actually be a Christian? But we can get to that another time. <laughs> so um, that's just that's that's really really good. Uh, so I want to spend a little bit more time on the subject of marriage, and you've you've said a lot already and given a lot of examples. But I mean, you you go into even more in your book on this subject mm-hmm. and. And um, so, so what are some of the, let's just say this, okay. What are some of the things 
that a person that is listening to this and thinks, oh, I may be married to a narcissist should look for, and, you know, maybe uh, this will also translate for at least a few of the narcissists out there, actual narcissists, and say, whoa, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is penetrating my heart on this one. <laughs> this yeah. is actually me. Go ahead. Let me answer the first question. Hmm. And if, if I forget, you bring me back to the second part, okay? Um, the, I would ask somebody who's thinking, you know, I wonder if I'm in a narcissistic marriage. I would ask, what will you do if you are? Hmm. Okay. Um, what's, what's interesting is there are people who try and try and try to dissect their marriage, to try to understand what is happening and why, but they have no part two. They don't, they can't do anything about, it. are you going to get a divorce? Um, is that what, you know, is that where you're going with this? What are you thinking? What's, what's the rest? And, and so a lot of times I'll have people say, Oh no, absolutely not. I, you know, I don't care how this question is answered. I'll never get a divorce. Okay. So then we don't need to answer that question. What we need to do is to look at what's happening in the marriage. Again, this forget the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening and how can you protect yourself and keep yourself healthy? So, you know, I, my counseling always is if you're being physically abused, get out. Period. I don't, divorce is another question. That's, that's another step. Getting out of the, the proximity of the abuser is step one. Get out of there. You, you're not going to find health if you're being physically abused. That's not going to happen. So, so the first step to get healthy is to separate yourself that way. Now, if that's not happening, and it rarely does, by the way, in, in narcissistic marriages, um, the, the general rule of thumb is that not all narcissists are abusers, physical abusers, okay? Um, almost all physical abusers are narcissists. So it's a matter of set limits, right? I mean, it's, one set is large and, and an inside set is smaller. Um, abusers tend to depersonalize the people they abuse. So they're, they're you know, very likely narcissistic. There's other reasons for abuse besides narcissism, but it's narcissistic behavior in, in any case. You can't hit somebody without having some sense of, you know, at least not somebody who's weak, somebody who's dependent on you. You know, in a fight, that's different. But, you know, in a, you don't slap your wife without having a certain narcissistic, you know, uh, attitude and depersonalization. Um, but, but narcissists aren't all abusers in terms of physical abuse. But they're all abusive in the way they treat other people because of that depersonalization. Your emotions don't matter to me. Your desires, your, your needs, you know, none of those things matter. And in fact, how my words affect you don't matter. If they accomplish the purpose that I want them to accomplish, that's all that matters. So they're very abusive in the language that they use, very abusive in the manipulation and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so what are you going to do about that? That was, okay, that's my question. How are you going to handle that in your life if somebody is abusive and you can't now, you've decided you're not going to get away or you're not going to give yourself that option. Um, and, and that is to maintain a distance. You know, I don't know if anybody, some of your uh, listeners will watch uh, things like Downton Abbey and get the sense of the old, you know, century old uh, British uh, marriage relationship. You know, um, 
it's it's the classic you know some most for the most part you know two beds separate lives the wife has her little responsibilities the husband has his little responsibilities that didn't stop genuine love it was just a very different definition than what we have today in in our idea you know genuine love has all kinds of intertwined emotions and all kinds of intertwined thinking and all that that, that wasn't true actually for most of history um in in most of history the husband and wife maintained a certain distance emotionally that allowed them each to be who they were you know mom ran the the farmhouse the dad was out there working you know he he came in she was supposed to have the meal she had the meals he's supposed to keep his dirty boots outside he did that you know they had they had certain things that that they handled back and forth and it worked for them without the intertwining that's not a great word but it but i think it makes it's a picture actually of their emotions hmm. you can't afford to let the narcissist manipulate your emotions that's what's unhealthy in the relationship hmm. so how do you deal with that what does that look like for you and one of the things you do is you make sure you give yourself time um if it's at all possible find a way to go for a walk, to have a special place in the house. This is what I, I'm, this is normal counseling for me. I say, go, you know, have a, a little place in the house that's kind of your spot, uh, a place in the backyard, have some friends if that's at all possible, join a club, exercise, a library club, something that's not a lot of time and energy. You can handle it. Um, but you meet people and, and you connect with people who value you. Somebody who says you do, a, you do a good job when back at home, you're almost completely convinced you do nothing right. Mm. Um, so find ways to feed that need outside of the marriage. It sounds, well, let's say it sounds very sad. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? it does. It does. It sounds very sad. But if you're absolutely committed that you must stay in the relationship, um, then you've got to find ways to be healthy in the midst of that relationship. The other thing I say is that our narcissists, although they're almost always predictable, their, their behavior can be predicted. Um, the wives know by the, by the way your husband drives home, okay, or whatever, they know what happened at work or, you know, they know these kinds of things. So, so you can predict to a certain extent what narcissists think, but that narcissistic rage, that, that bizarre behavior that a lot of narcissists present, that can't always be protect, you know, predicted. Um, so I tell women, I say, look, if you get $5 that you're not accountable for, put it away. Put it in a drawer, put it someplace, and if you get another twenty dollars, put that away, and see if you can't have. And now this is in an ultimate control situation. Okay, um, most wives can simply, you know, tuck away some money. But I say, look, have enough money to get a motel room, have enough money for a good tank of gas, uh, enough to get you to your folks, enough to get you to somebody you know who cares about you and you can you know can be with them. And if if not even that, enough to get you and the kids to a motel for the night, something where you know it's there, 
You may never have to use it, but the peace and the confidence, the health that comes from knowing you have it will be substantial. Knowing you could leave if you wanted to, if you had to, um, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, almost everybody that talks about the despair in abusive relationships despairs because they don't see any way of escape. So even having a possibility of escape, you know, have the number for the women's um, center downtown that will put you up for the night. Have that phone number someplace, memorize something, you know, and I know these women's centers are usually, you know, very liberal, very, you know, they have their own problems, but someplace, somebody, you know, that you can go talk to. So that's. And, and I want to ask a follow-up question to this. Um, okay. Have you noticed patterns of, I guess, fallout pa patterns um, within people that were in narcissistic, abusive marital relationships if they wind up getting divorced and find themselves on the other side of that, what do those look like? You'd be absolutely amazed at how many of them go right back to another narcissist. <sighs> and, and I've talked to people who've been married three times. All of them are narcissists. And they're like, what in the world is wrong with me? Well, you know, at that point, that's a really reasonable question. <laughs> I mean, I want to be gracious, but, but what is it that, you know, that opens up? Well, basically the narcissist didn't meet the needs that you thought they were meeting, you know? So, so you thought that this narcissist was accepting you and, and loving you and you had so strong of needs to have that happen in your life that you gave, gave yourself over to this person without paying attention to the red flags that you saw, ignoring the red flags that your support people brought. Um, you pushed right ahead and you took what you thought they were offering and then found out they weren't offering. You got rid of that guy. Now you get another one and you find out maybe this guy did the same thing to you. He just did it a little differently. You know, he, he used the bad narcissist you just got away from as the negative example and, and was smart enough to present himself. But you projected a vulnerability that they capitalized on. A vulnerability that was probably, and, and by the way, I think, I think we're talking about 90% of the time, uh, that's off the top of my head, it's not a matter of study. Um, a vulnerability that was built into that person as a child. Okay, so again, coming out of narcissistic family relationships, it's very common for a young woman particularly to find a, um, a narcissistic husband and then another narcissistic husband after that. Now, the, the amazing thing and the good part of all of this in our day is because this disorder has been talked about enough and the internet has been a, an amazing tool to get this information in a, in a surreptitious way, right? We don't, nobody quite knows what you're reading. And, uh, and so now they're learning what's been happening and they learn how to protect themselves. And, and so some very good things I think are happening. And remember, everything that I say is out of a Christian perspective. So we're talking about Christian. When I talk, I'm talking about Christian marriages. I know there's, you know, there's marriages in general. There's a ton of information on narcissism out there in the secular world. 
But everything that I teach and talk about is in a context of a Christian relationship. So these are these are good church people, right? <laughs> so and I want to toss that in because it kind of brings us back to a little bit different different flavor here. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and of course, there are different standards for behavior depending on what people group you're looking at. Yeah, um, right. My gosh. All right, so there's a whole lot of stuff that I want to talk about I, I, because you, you, you have a whole book on narcissism in the church, um, dealing with narcissistic parents. Uh, we didn't really cover that, dealing with narcissistic bosses, um, other narcissistic leaders, uh, healing from narcissistic abuse. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do, Dr. Orson. I am going to invite you back for a round two on this subject. And folks, um, he has a book called narcissism in the church and i'm going to let you dr orison give us your website and any other contact information you want to leave sure so that people that have been listening to this can uh follow up excellent excellent so i've been i've been doing a blog for a long time the, the blog is a wordpress blog so it's www.graceformyheart and the purposely changed one word and sometimes that's confusing but grace for my heart uh, dot wordpress dot com that's a hosted you know it's there they host the site so it's a dot com site uh, also I have my own website that we're just we've just completely redesigned so it's just new I've got almost a thousand posts on narcissism and and grace so I'm a grace teacher primarily um, but lots of posts on narcissism. And so I'm trying to get those organized and get it in a helpful way to people. But that uh, website is Grace for the Heart, which is the name of our ministry, graceforthehart.org. So uh, people are welcome to go to both of those. Um, the book is on Amazon, as you say, uh, Narcissism in the Church, A Heart of Stone in Christian Relationships, mm. uh, which seems to fit very well. Um, but um, and it's it's a very different kind of book, I think. It, it's basically stories, and then and then explaining part of what my goal is in the book is simply to help people explain what in the world has been happening, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in my family, my Christian family, my Christian mother who can quote scripture to me all the time and then rip my heart out with her hands. I mean, what is that? You know, um, my Christian husband who's an elder in the church and an abuser at home. How, what is that? How does that happen in a Christian context? Um, my Christian pastor who's supposed to take care of, you know, the people who's supposed to be this godly man uh, who flirts with me after the service or, you know, who, you know, I was the, the, the youth pastor and I was totally abused. What was that? You know, um, maybe even the pastor himself who looks at denomination and says, you know, here we are, a group of friends together. And, and when I have a struggle, I'm kicked to the curb and these guys don't even acknowledge me. What the heck is that? <laughs> so I suppose if there's one question I'm trying to answer, it's what the heck is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Orison back. So uh, just, you know, hold, hold on to your horses. It's been a pleasure having you and hosting you on the podcast. And uh, folks, that's it. So until next time, God bless and Godspeed. 
You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.